Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine. Today I have with me in the studio Rebecca Hoffman, who is the director of the Maine Health Center for Trauma, Resiliency, and Innovation, and also an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine. Thank you for being here today. Of course. So um, I'm going to think that your your professional trajectory has probably been pretty busy from the beginning. You've been doing this work for a while, but I'm guessing that things have ramped up quite a bit with COVID. And then we've had some recent incidents in um, Lewiston that have been pretty tragic. So yeah. it's been busy for you for a while. I'm going to start with how are you doing? <laughs> how are you doing as a person? Um I uh, am invigorated by this part of the work that when, you know, we, we, we do a lot of planning in this kind of work for events that we hope will never happen. Um, but um, I'm invigorated when I can truly help. So this has been horrible and tragic and a lot of work, but also incredibly invigorating to see people getting help. Well, I, I like this idea that you're combining clinical innovation and training and you put it together with behavioral health, because I think there are a lot of old models and a lot of misperceptions mm -hmm. that are kind of firmly rooted in the past. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the innovation and how are we thinking differently about emotional, behavioral, mental, um, the impact on the person. Sure. Um, so the mental health or behavioral health world has often been um, a little behind the medical world in terms of, um, I don't want to say valuing innovation, but really holding it as an important part of the work we do. There's a lot of um, a lot of sort of the idea of treatment as usual, which is what someone's always done as a clinician. But there are all these types of treatment and models and um, research that's happened that has shown what works and what doesn't work. Um, and it really takes often uh, grant funds or foundation dollars to bring those practices to, um, to an area such as Maine. And so um, when I first started my position, which has evolved about 15 years ago, it was really about bringing those practices that we know work to Maine. And at that point, it was primarily focused on children exposed to trauma and violence. And, um, and so uh, the work was just about infusing the community, the behavioral health community, with training in the practices that we know work with children exposed to violence and trauma. And so um, that's still, you know, there's people we trained 15 years ago that are seeing kids now after Lewiston. And so the impact has been um, really a long-term shift in Maine and how we, how we do this work. Work in the health system I work with, we did something related to pediatric behavioral health. We did a, a presentation, a panel, and we brought in clinicians who were talking about some pretty serious things, depression, anxiety, suicide, and children. Mm -hmm. um, and I was really interested to hear that we now are doing 
cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, we're now doing a lot more with family counseling. Are there other examples of things that you've brought to Maine that you think have been particularly beneficial? Absolutely. Um, the first thing I'll say is that cognitive behavioral therapy has been around a long time and it's still the base of a lot of what we do. So one of the treatment models that um, that my team and I brought to Maine was trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. And so it really, it's a hybrid model that combines um, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, with some exposure components that we know help children reduce symptoms related to their trauma. And so, again, it's it's um, it's grounded in CBT. Um, there are a couple other um, types of models in particular that are a little bit different but speak to what you um, talked about. One is um, actually one of the ones that I feel really excited about is an intervention that's in the, um, it's a peri, peri-traumatic intervention. So it's done in the immediate aftermath of a traumatic event. And so the focus is really prevention of PTSD, anxiety, depression, all those things you're um, mentioning. And it's really the first real preventative intervention in kids exposed to trauma. And it's brief, it's six to eight sessions, and it's been shown to reduce the likelihood of a child developing um, PTSD. And so um, that's exciting because um, kids will often think when they have these um, types of mental health issues that they're going to be in therapy forever. And that's just not the case, that they can heal quickly and have the skills or the tools in their toolbox to handle difficult times in the future. That's really important because I know in clinical practice, when I have people who have come in who have not had interventions like that and have not been able to access preventive work, which is usually the case, but even sometimes not sort of work that is done after the, after the fact, it really impacts them as adults. They have a difficult time functioning at their job sometimes. You know, there are physical impacts. They can't sleep. I mean, obviously, they they develop diagnoses. But then there becomes um, this intergenerational trauma that occurs. So then you're talking about um, when they have children, it, it impacts their children. And then sometimes it can impact the grandchildren. So you're not just talking about impacting an individual. You're talking about potentially impact an entire family system. Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree. I think some the, the beauty of some of these interventions is that um, if you're helping a parent um, with supporting one child, you're also helping that parent support the other children in the family. And so some of these interventions are really um, much broader than, let's say, a child that has been impacted by something. They impact the whole system, but then they also teach those children tools to function better as when they become parents themselves. Uh, there's There's research about the intergenerational transmission of trauma, which is incredibly fascinating that children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, for example, actually have um, more of a likelihood to develop anxiety or PTSD just based on their genes. Um, It's the field of epigenetics. Uh, But what we really try to focus on is what 
what are someone's tools in their toolbox, right? So if somebody comes into a difficult situation as an adult and they haven't, they don't have tools in their toolbox or they didn't learn them as children, they're going to go to what they learn or what's potentially easiest. That's why you often see substance use after trauma is that um, the use of substances can numb someone from those very painful and difficult feelings they have. Um, and it's a it's an easy, easily accessible tool, but not one that we would consider a healthy coping skill or a healthy tool. So um, when an adult comes in in a lot of pain, the the goal is the same it would be for a child is to give them more tools in their toolbox for healthy coping. I like the way that you're describing it. It's 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 not as sort of blame based. We oftentimes I think traditionally when people come in, particularly as adults, maybe not children, there there seems to be a tendency to label people with a diagnosis that sometimes puts the onus back on them. Like because you did something, you now are having a substance use disorder problem with alcohol, let's just say. And what you're saying is maybe these people didn't have adequate resources. So maybe they were exposed to something. And maybe if they had had the resources they needed, then they wouldn't have needed to turn to alcohol. And I I think that puts a lot more um, hope into the conversation and also makes it possible to invest in more of a growth mindset about people's capacity to change. Absolutely. I think when we look at an individual as um, someone that, you know, this is how I like to, to say it is instead of asking what's wrong with them, we ask what happened to them. And that allows us to consider the whole system that they grew up in, that they um, inherited, that the the community they live in and how supported they've been, have they faced um, microaggressions like racism every day that have slowly cut down their coping skills. And, and instead of looking at what's wrong with them, we say, what happened in their life that made this so hard for them or is making this so difficult for them? And what can we help them with to counteract that impact? You grew up outside of Bangor and went away, got an education, came back. What was it about um, your family situation, your school education in the Bangor area? What caused you to move in the direction of doing this work? I always had, I always had something in me. I, I, I sort of call it um, this this pocket of pain where I felt like I was drawn to people's pain and wanted to heal it. it it's um, you know, I sort of wear it right there on my sleeve and I found the other people in my community that have that same desire to ease other people's pain. And that's really what drove me into the work. Um, I grew up in a rural community and I love the culture of Maine. I love that individualistic culture, but the culture that helps our neighbors. Um, there wasn't a lot of drive for status or things. There was a lot of, um, drive for family experiences and, um, simple pleasures. And so that's what brought me back to Maine. I grew up in a blended family. And so helping children and helping families become the best they can was really close to my heart. I'm glad you brought that up because... 
I think even having a blended family or coming from a blended family or going through a divorce, I think there's still a stigma around that. And I think for a child to understand that any family setting can be loving and supporting and nurturing. And really you're just, you're, you're talking about a different group of individuals who can learn to be together and coexist, that a family really can be anything. It doesn't have to be what we have called nuclear in the past. And there are a lot of people who have blended families. So we kind of need to get out there the, the word that actually this can be done well. Absolutely. And uh, what I often say is that I'm grateful that I come from a blended family because it taught me so much um, about what you're talking about, about you know what makes a family. And it isn't necessarily blood, it's love and connection. And my blended family, which um, was six children who were brought up to not think of each other as half or step-siblings, but we were each other's sisters and brothers, really taught me that, um, as you said, anything can be a family. And, um, you know, bringing it back to sort of the, the issues of what, kids have experienced in the pandemic, in our recent tragedy in Lewiston, is that um, research really shows that all kids need is one caring adult in their life. If they have one caring adult who really pays attention to them, shows them that they're valued, that that buffers the impact of the stressors they may experience. And anybody can be that caring adult. It can be a bus driver, clergy, a grandmother, a mentor. It can be anybody. And that really, I hope, tells the community when they want to help that that they can be that one caring adult for a child and they will buffer the impact of what that child is experiencing. So let's say I am the caring adult, but I'm not blood related to someone. And I happen to be a clinician, but let's say I'm not. What are some things, what are some tools that I could use? What are some approaches I could take to be supportive of a child that has had an, a traumatic impact, maybe related to the, the Lewiston incident or maybe related to the pandemic or maybe something completely different? What types of things do you suggest could be helpful? Some things that can be helpful are um, really showing that child that they're quote unquote normal, right? That they're not damaged from what they've experienced. A lot of kids think that after they go through trauma, that that's their whole life. And we like to show them that that's just a chapter in their book of life. And they have so many other chapters that they've experienced or that they will experience. And so showing that child hope, showing that child joy and fun and Levity is so important. It doesn't need to be a clinical intervention of sorts. It can be playing basketball and ask them how they're doing and really caring about them and um, letting them know that you're a safe place to come to if they're experiencing difficulty. If they know they have um, supports, then that's going to help, again, buffer some of the difficult things they've been through. That's a really good point. I mean, I think we all, even as adults, like to have the sense that somebody cares about us as a human mm. and likes to, you know, I, I personally like to have a moment of levity in a mm. situation. I think that's important to laugh. 
and to acknowledge that we aren't necessarily our stories. And the story can have a really significant impact and obviously validate that for a child or for a fellow human being, but that you're right, you know, life is long, hopefully, for some people. So one question that I have for you is, how do we help clinicians who have been trained in an older model to understand that there are new ways of approaching this? And I know you work with specifically behavioral health clinicians, but you also have a Tufts affiliation. So I'm assuming that you work interprofessionally. So what are some things that you're doing now to help, say, your family nurse practitioners understand that there are different ways of going about this? So we do a lot of work with the medical community um, to help them understand their role. And um, what we have found in behavioral health is that those seeking, let's say, traditional mental health services are kind of the tip of the iceberg. And there's all these people, kids, families, adults, whatever it may be, sort of under the surface that may need supports, but they might not need that traditional hour of therapy of a week or whatever it might be. And that there's all these interventions that others can do that can help someone with difficult times or even with mental health issues. And those people are often medical professionals because um, what we want to do is find where people are already going, right? And, And teach those people how to help someone. And Um, many, many people have a primary care practitioner or a family nurse practitioner or someone in their life that's medical who can be that voice of, um, skill building, right? So for clinicians to first off be comfortable talking about behavioral health or talking about emotional pain, to be able to ask someone how they're doing and be comfortable with someone saying, I'm not okay. And so really teaching um, medical professionals or others to be okay with asking those questions that we hear so often, I don't want to ask the question because I don't know what to do if they say, yes, I'm struggling. And so providing tools, resources, places to refer um, are part of the ways that we help people feel comfortable with asking those questions. And oftentimes, um, when you ask someone the question and, you know, like, how are you doing? And they say, I'm not okay. That that's a healing intervention in and of, in and of itself, because someone's listened to them and cared, right? It comes back to caring and connection. So, um, so we really work to provide a toolkit um, for other professionals to feel like they have the skill set to be able to ask those questions and respond. I'm going to uh, ask a question that I, I think is something that I've pondered quite a bit in my own life, and that is as the mother of um, originally three children, but now six children in a blended family, um, when these traumatic events occur in the community, I feel personally impacted, but I, but I, I feel this brooding impulse. Like I want to mm-hmm. I bring the chicks back under mm-hmm. my wings. And I know that you similarly have school-aged children. So I, I know how I have processed all of this and the outreach that I've done with my family. How have you processed the recent events in Lewiston and some of the things that went on longer term over COVID? It's a great question. Um, so first off, I think 
um, this coming really on the heels of COVID is difficult because what COVID taught us is um, the importance of connection and the um, really the damage of isolation. We are um, we are beings that are born to connect. We need connection in our lives as human beings. And when people don't feel connected is when they start to falter. For, and we saw that with COVID when people lived alone and didn't have a lot of connections. It was really uh, negatively impactful to them. Um, and on the heels of this, I feel like what I learned how, was how important connection is. And when my chicks are suffering to bring them close, just like you said, and to connect and, and really connect and that that is what heals over and over again is connection. And so, um, when this all occurred and was unraveling around us, I think just the bringing of the chicks into the nest and finding ways to connect is really important. Um, it was important to ask them how they were doing um, and really listen, right? Instead of, um, you know, talking about the events, talking about how they were doing with processing the events. And then again, um, finding those times for joy and levity are so important. Um, kids, depending on the developmental age, they don't understand that this is a an event that will have a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? And um, and that this isn't this this heaviness that we're all feeling is so profound and so sad. But there is um, we need to have light in the midst of that darkness, right? Um, and so, um, really finding ways to feel joy with them um, and show them that it's okay to feel joy in the midst of the sadness that we're experiencing with what happened. Yeah, I think what you're describing is so interesting to me because my my children are all older, they're adults. We connected as the way that we normally do, kind of digitally and and um and that felt right. My sisters and brothers have school-age children and trunk or treat was canceled because of the shelter in place orders. But what was nice was by the time Halloween rolled around, my nieces and nephews were actually able to go out in the neighborhood and wear their costumes and connect with their um, classmates and the aunts and the uncles. And that was really important. And it, it didn't negate all the terrible things that had happened a few days later. And it didn't take away the fact that they had lost trunk or treat, but they still got to just be normal kids, which I think you can hold both things at once that some people will say, well, you have to cancel Halloween because it's all so sad, but the kids don't what are they going to do? Are they just going to sit at home and play Legos? They, they, they need that. They need the things that kind of normalize their lives. Right, exactly. And for kids, there are certain things that help them recover from uh, stressful events. And one of the biggest things is normalcy and routines. And so balancing out what feels right in terms of honoring the gravity of the situation with maintaining normalcy for our kids is, um, it's a hard line to fall on, but it's really important. Um, and, and I think the other thing that was so important about Halloween was again, that it allowed kids to connect with each other and have 
fun and joy. And it doesn't take away from the experiences that happened, but it showed them that, again, this is a chapter in the book of their lives and other people's lives, and there will be other chapters after that. And again, depending on developmental age, some kids don't realize that. They think this could be the way it is all the time. And um, we want to show them that, that, that there will be other phases and there will be joy again. Well, I really appreciate your taking the time out of your very busy schedule to come in and talk to me today, Rebecca. It was wonderful to talk with you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm Dr. Lisa Belayo, and today I've been speaking with Rebecca Hoffman, who is the director of the Maine Health Center for Trauma, Resiliency, and Innovation, and who is also an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine. Thank you for being here today. Thanks. Thanks.